This episode of Pop Health Week is sponsored by Health Innovation Media. Health Innovation Media brings your brand narrative alive both on the ground and in the virtual space for a major trade show, conference, and innovation summits via our signature pop-up studio. Connect with us at www.popupstudio.productions. Welcome everyone, I'm Greg Masters, producer and co-host of Pop Health Week, managing director at Health Innovation Media and publisher at acowatch.com. Joining me in the virtual studio is my colleague, Fred Goldstein, president of Accountable Health LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm. Fred is co-founder and lead co-host at Pop Health Week. On today's COVID-19 update, we dive into the headlines from the U.S. Indicators dashboard to the current state of vaccine development and commentary on the likely pandemic health policy agenda of the Biden-Harris administration. So first up is the U.S. COVID-19 dashboard, where we've passed another in a series of grim milestones, crossing 10.5 million cases with death counts just shy of one quarter of a million. Most troubling to me is the combination of accelerating cases, positivity rates, and hospital admissions, which are currently, or soon to be, stressing regional health system capacities, whether critical care, ICU, or general acute care bed availability, but more importantly, staffing. Some fear the worst is yet to come as uncontrolled community spread-driven demand continues to spike during the fall and winter months. As we produce this show in the city of El Paso, they're adding mobile morgue refrigerated trailers, much like we saw in New York City during Phase 1. And in North Dakota, clinicians are being instructed to return to duty if COVID positive but asymptomatic. Perhaps the current state of affairs is best framed by the curators at covidexitstrategy.org, that a, quote, third wave of COVID-19 is crashing into states, colon, hospitalizations, and cases rising, end quote. The curators color-coded the nation into four categories, from one, uncontrolled spread, two, trending poorly, three, caution warranted, and four, trending better. Forty-seven states are experiencing uncontrolled spread with two states, Maine and Hawaii, trending poorly. Vermont is the one state coded yellow at the caution-warranted status. No state is trending better. On the low end in the uncontrolled spread category is California and Georgia, both tied with 154 new cases per million, and North Dakota leading the pack at a whopping 1,716 new cases per million. COVID-19 hospitalizations in the United States hit an all-time high of 61,964 last Tuesday, and new daily cases passed 139,000 for the first time. The country has surpassed 100,000 cases every day for a week, pushing the seven-day average to more than 123,000 per day. So Fred, this is a dynamic situation, but not necessarily a binary choice between opening up and locking down the U.S. economy. But we can be mindful of the risks and do this reopening thing safely, no? Yeah, rather unbelievable, isn't it? It's really, uh, and, and you can see it in the activities just driving around outdoors, of which I've begun to do less going into places, 
because they really have opened wide up here, at least in Florida. You know, and we're seeing a rather substantial surge here due specifically to that behavior. And with some new studies out, one of them that was fascinating out of Stanford, I believe it was, and they were tracking people and really identified where are the locales where people are most likely to become infected that are problematic. And restaurants were number one. Restaurants that have opened indoors, gone to 100% capacity, gyms and other places like that, and bars. But really interesting, I went to a restaurant a week ago and was just ran in to pick up a takeout order, and they had gone from 50% occupancy the last time I'd been there to 100, and I had to weave my way between the tables to get to the takeout section because they were stacked in so tightly. And I think it's really created a, a problem that obviously we'll get to a little bit later with the administration. By the time they come in, these numbers are bad now and trending worse, as you point out, and are going to lead to some really big problems. Yeah, here in San Diego County, we've been relatively um, uh, modestly impacted because mm -hmm. uh, our governor, Newsom, early on in March, went to a statewide um, shelter-in-place order so we didn't see the explosions. And we're also a little more favorable here because we have a, a climate such that it may not predispose us to, to higher concentrations of, of the virus. So we've seen less incidents and prevalence. However, in San Diego County, two days ago, we went to the uh, back to the purple uh, status, mm -hmm. which is the lockdowns. We have community outbreaks. We're going backwards, and unfortunately, I, I see this accelerating. Marty Macri, he uh, posted a, uh, a preprint uh, article on uh, MedArchive. The title is Preventing COVID-19 Fatalities, State versus Federal Policies. And this leans into your discussion on health policy here in a bit. But um, the question was, are COVID-19 fatalities large when a federal government does not impose containment policies and instead allows states to implement their own, uh, they considered three policies, mask mandates, stay-at-home orders, and interstate travel bans. And they, uh, they note here, quote, while the restrictions imposed by some states inhibited a significant number of virus deaths, we find that more than two-thirds of COVID-19 deaths could have been prevented, two-thirds, could have been prevented by late September 2020 had the federal government imposed federal mandates as early as some of the earliest state did, states did, like, like California. So their results highlight the need for early actions by a federal government for the successful containment of a pandemic. So that opens the, the whole discussion of what we can look uh, for and from a Biden administration. So what are you learning there, Fred? Well, you know, I think uh, obviously the uh, president-elect has appointed his, his COVID advisory group and they held their first meeting. I think it points to the fact that one, as we well recognize, he is going to follow the science. The science, and I think what's fascinating is we've seen these changes by the CDC over time. And for example, their most recent announcement that masks work both ways, helping both you used to be wear the mask to protect somebody else but if you remember back it was don't wear a mask now some of that was because of the issues of not having enough of these but it, it was pretty clear to me and to most of the people i talked to that a mask would impact some of the virus coming in as you were breathing in 
some of those particles are going to get caught in a fiber somewhere. You know, maybe not as well as an N95, but they would reduce some of that exposure. And now, of course, the CDC has come out and said it. And the question is, how much of that delay was due to politics? For example, back in June, they were saying, we don't believe there's enough data to recommend pre-testing students to come back to campus, while in many, much of our work, we did recommend that schools do that. And now that is, in fact, a recommendation. And it's pretty straightforward. It's one other thing you can do to reduce some risk. It's all about layering on as many pieces as you can to reduce risk. And it seems like hopefully what happens on a go-forward basis, and the CDC obviously has been whacked, and whether they get the respect back that they had earned over decades is going to be a tough one for them, is there, I believe you'll see them begin to make announcements earlier on specific recommendations versus this hesitancy, or in fact there are cases apparently where the White House had them rewrite various recommendations and policies. And I think that influence will disappear, which will help all of us because we can then begin to make the changes we need sooner. Well, you're being very gentle and kind because I, <laughs> I, would, I, I would say that uh, with the exception of some of the career people, uh, and I'll just throw out one name, Nancy Messonnier, who did the conference, uh, press conference back in February. She said, Look, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, and we better start talking about massive disruptions to our economy. Well, she went radio silent <laughs> after that comment, and who did we hear from? We heard from Redfield, and Redfield has been um, a rather weak leader at CDC. He has essentially presided over vague guidance that goes from shall to might consider so, if anything, the guidance really that came out of the CDC, the recent past, or at least literally over the pandemic, has been confusing, vague, conflicting, outright not useful. So, the idea that, oh, yeah, masks is a two-way protective measure, and by the way, if we go 95% to masking, we'll save a couple hundred thousand lives in the next 60 to 90 days. So, I, I'm glad to hear that uh, we're going to actually have a staffed committee, advisory panel, by competent people, former Surgeon uh, General Vivek Murthy, uh, Marcella Nunez-Smith, over at, uh, she's the Dean for Health Equity Research at Yale, and former FDA Commissioner David Kessler. So I think this is going to be a group of people who are empirically driven, science-based, and not vetted through the political lens of, is this going to get me reelected or not? Absolutely. And I think there's, you know, as you point out, there was just an article that came out that skewered Redfield and pointed out, you know, all of the areas where he sort of rolled over. And and that's frustrating to watch. And and from my perspective, I've not really understood how and why individuals could continue to work in that environment and think you could move the needle or hold the needle in a place uh, versus speak the truth. We, you know, it, he was told back in February, the president, that this thing was bad or the end of January. We knew there were issues. I remember talking to uh, Ren Archer, who you know, and, and Ren had been talking to the folks at the University of Nebraska who run the, this special unit that was originally developed for Ebola, where they would bring people in, and it's the most 
it has the most research on these types of infectious diseases and the place to handle it. And he said, here's how it's going to work, Fred. They've told us yesterday this baby's going to hit a city and shut it down for 30 days. And then it'll roll to the next one and shut it down for 30 days. And what we did was, when it rolled to each one of them, we sort of halved it. Oh, well, you know, well, we'll control it for a while. And then we opened up. And too much of this effort to open up. And I do believe you can open up. You can't open everything. You can't open 100% occupancy in an indoor facility. They just had that. I don't know if you saw the latest on the cruise that just went out. They had a cruise that put in place all of these procedures, testing beforehand, twice, testing four days after you came on, and they just reported that they have a person with COVID on the ship, and they put everybody into their rooms and told them not to come out. So we, if we want students to go back to school, if we want the economy to have some chance of coming back, we ourselves have to take control of our behaviors and say, this is okay based on the science, and this is not. And the science will change, and we get better and better at it. But many of these things we knew before, or had an inkling of before, and could have made massive changes early on that would have saved, as you pointed out, hundreds of thousands of lives. The IHME projections by February 1st are just shy of 400,000. 400,000, yeah. Right. Unbelievable. So, but your point is, it's not a binary choice between lockdown and opening. You know, there's no, no such thing as zeroing out risk. It's risk mitigation and risk management. And we've learned a hell of a lot since February, March. And that becomes a scary thought, Greg, because you think about a governor like I have here in Florida. Is his level of risk tolerance appropriate? Because obviously it's pretty high. Let's just open everything. And, and I think it's been clearly disproven that this idea we're going to get to herd immunity and keep other people from dying is just not possible. We're seeing the hospitalization rates go up. We're seeing the death rates go up. But people also forget there's a lot of individuals who are living with long-term damage from having gotten COVID. They may not have died, but their lives are forever changed made progress, but we're still very early in understanding the disease profile and how it enters and then distributes in a particular community. And then there's risk stratification within the community as to who bears the disproportionate burden. So we're learning a heck of a lot. Absolutely. And as you point out, there's a lot more to learn. I think the, you know, a new study just came out, an area obviously we're both very interested in and have worked in quite a bit. This whole area of I think it was 25% of the individuals suffered from uh, mental health issues after getting COVID, depression, anxiety, yeah. sleep disorders, things like that. Right, PMA study, uh, right. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, there's, there's impacts all over the place from this virus. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Pop Health Week. My colleague Fred Goldstein, president of Accountable Health LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm and co-founder and lead co-host at Pop Health Week, and I, yours truly, Greg Masters, are discussing recent developments on the COVID-19 front, from epidemiology to progress on the vaccine and the likely impact of the presidential election on pandemic health policy going forward. I might add that this is happening during a period of COVID-19 uncertainty and challenging market conditions, driving complex strategic questions focused on how health systems can re-engineer their predominantly passive legacy sick care operations 
to a more proactive population-based services model. In this conversation, we hear a lot about the social determinants of health, something clearly outside the traditional footprint of hospital operations. In fact, our colleague, friend, and frequent guest on Pop Health Week, Dr. David Nash, founding dean emeritus of the Jefferson College of Population Health, has recently drawn attention to an emerging social determinants of health industry where vendors are shopping their proprietary solutions to ostensibly move the needle away from and towards an otherwise unclear operating footprint. At Pop Health Week, we've chronicled on prior broadcasts the challenge, imperative, and limited pool of business cases modeling a health promotion incentivized versus the fee-for-service-driven hunger of prevailing sick care-oriented health systems. In what Esther Dyson once characterized as a calcified hairball that resists innovation by assimilation, COVID-19 may have finally presented health system leadership with the systematic gaps and fundamental inequities inherent in this poorly performing but prevailing financing and delivery system model. Absolutely. And I think as we, as you point out, this whole social determinants of health we've talked about before, the disparate impact of this disease on individuals in lower socioeconomic groups or various communities throughout the United States that don't have access or are required to go into work and don't have an opportunity to work from home or work in jobs in which there are much higher risks associated with them, like meatpacking plants or restaurants potentially. I just saw another study where they looked at individuals working in grocery stores and the percent of individuals staffing those grocery stores who were infected or had gotten COVID were very high, mm-hmm. particularly more so for those that had more interaction, obviously, with their customers. So there are, we're, we're learning all of those things. I think this we're also learning where you can do things safely or safer, I should say, outdoor activities. You know, I'm participating with a school group now, the Outdoor Learning Collaborative, that's trying to move classrooms outside, find ways to do more of those stuff in a safer environment. And those kinds of ideas, I think, are going to play forward for a while. It's going to take a while to get these vaccines and vaccines out, get them distributed. They're not going to be perfect. Uh, We'll have to wait and see the full date on the Pfizer vaccine. Obviously, they're talking 90% effectiveness. But it was interesting, and obviously I'm not an epidemiologist or a vaccine person, but I did look at at what's been printed, which is not a published study, and it came from them, was that they had 94 individuals at this point who had become infected between the control arm and those getting the vaccine, and it was 90% effective, which would lead you to believe that they probably had eight or so infections in the control group, in the the vaccine group, and 80-some-odd in the control group. So it's not perfect. But it did say something that I just found interesting, and I've been asking some physicians about this, and they, too, are, are, are interested in it. It said, of those with symptomatic infection. So how many were asymptomatic? And as we've seen, they talk about viral dose and say a lower dose may lead you to be asymptomatic or less sick. So might the vaccine actually have more asymptomatic individuals in it because it's had some effect to bring that down, but not enough to knock it out. And that actually may change those numbers. We'll have to see when they report their next batch and they get the full studies out. But there's still a fair number of questions about it, let alone the distribution models, et cetera, for that particular vaccine from Pfizer, which requires extreme cold temperatures, although they've really thought that one through from what I've read about it. So you think that's a logistical um, obstacle they'll meet? Yeah, they chose to do everything outside of the warp speed 
president's deal or the White House's warp speed initiative. They chose to do it themselves. They took no funding and haven't coordinated and actually are not using the distribution arm that was set up by the federal government for warp speed, which is through McKesson. And they have their own carriers. They've essentially going to try to bulk transport this stuff one or two days worth. And, and I think from what I've read, it requires a very cold temperature overall, but you can keep it in a normal fridge for about 24 hours. So you've got to get it to a location. I do know of some clinics and others that have talked about we actually that they actually have refrigerator freezers at that temperature for their research purposes. And so they could potentially house some of that vaccine in their community and then help to distribute it out. But all that's yet to be seen. But I think as I was talking to um, one of my relatives who used to work at the FDA, really involved in a lot of stuff like this, and early on, he said, I think Pfizer will be able to do it. They're used to distributing huge quantities of stuff and buying a billion vials or whatever it requires to do these kinds of things. And that does help. Obviously, it's a huge logistics issue. I read something about they've already picked their carriers, DHL and the others, to move the stuff, some by plane, some by truck. And uh, we'll see how it goes. But again, think about that. They talk about 50 million vaccines available by the end of the year. Well, you have to get two, so that's 25 million people. You know, And then you've all got the issue, who only got one shot and didn't get the second or didn't show up? So there's going to be a lot of stuff going on as we begin to move this out. And, of course, Moderna and the others will come out with their vaccines too, I think. Right. It looks like Moderna is close to revealing uh, their first data yeah. on whether it's working Hopefully good not. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and also, Greg, I think it's important for people to understand that 50 million doses by the end of this year, a couple hundred million doses next year, we have 350 million people in the United States. And then you've got the world. I think I heard that Spain has announced that they bought 20 million doses of the, vi- of the vaccine from Pfizer. So there will be some others, and they're going to be supposed to get theirs in the spring. It will take some time, obviously. First go to the high-risk individuals, healthcare workers. Then it'll begin to go out to others in the population. How they determine those high-risk individuals and, and get it to them will be interesting. Obviously, there are a number of disease conditions that are considered high-risk. Are you going through electronic health records to find them? Those kinds of things. So I think, you know, as we've talked to some of our clients, it'll really be an impact potentially on the fall for them where they can begin to look at Oh, we've got a fair chunk of our individuals in our location or at a university or school who are vaccinated, but it probably will not impact the spring. Look, 90% effective efficacy is, is fantastic. So if we can work through the logistics of manufacturing and distribution in some way that makes sense, uh, that would be great. Because, uh, you know, conventionally speaking, from a epidemiologic perspective, you're not at herd immunity until you're at the 70 80% range. So you do the math on the, the number of, uh, of uh, eligible hosts out there and what it's going to take for a vaccine to make a dent in. Right, and still some questions about how long might you be immune. Right. Um, and we'll get answered to that, but I will say yeah. an unbelievable job to this rapidly get yeah. to yeah. a vaccine that looks like it works. Yeah, and daily about. So one of the big questions is how long and will this vaccine run in terms of protection? Yeah, Absolutely. How many more shots you need? And I did see a few articles from individuals who felt that they were in the arm that got the vaccine. Pretty funny. I think they probably got it in their arm. I'm not sure where the shot's given. But um, they said that they felt pretty sick. It was like getting a hangover or or things like that uh, for about a day. Um, although they, I, I think taking some um, 
you know, Tylenol or something may have mitigated that, but a number of people talked about the impact they got and saying that the second shot potentially was worse than the first. Right. So reasons for optimism here, but again, still early in the game. So looks like um, President-elect Biden will be the 46th president of the United States. I see he's uh, appointed his uh, chief of staff, Ron Klain, who was at one point the co- uh, the uh, Ebola czar. He was uh, he led the effort to put the uh, pandemic playbook together. What is it? What, what do you make of the election results, and how do you think all this is going to factor into where we go pandemic-wise? Yeah, well, I think obviously, as we've talked about, the I think the, the from the pandemic perspective, these uh, the the Biden uh, administration will look at this and, and from a much different point of view, and obviously make some serious recommendations. He's talked about national mask mandates or things like that. I, for my for one, have chosen to just wear a mask when I remember I'm outdoors until I get into my vehicle or get into my house, and uh, and done that. I think there's a clear benefit to doing that. Uh, so I think from that perspective, it's good. I think what's going to be interesting to see from the broader perspective of the administration is all these other areas that you and I have touched on over the years. Where does it go from a value-based care perspective? Where does it go from a Medicare perspective? Where you know we just had the Supreme Court hear the ACA the other day, and obviously it sounds like, based on the questions and things, that the Affordable Care Act is going to stand. And we can go all the way back, Greg, to when we had former Governor and HHS Secretary Tommy Thompson on, and he was talking about the Affordable Care Act and said, look, I keep telling people, yes, it's not perfect. Leave the good stuff in place and fix the rest of it. Don't get rid of it. Well, I think we may now finally have the opportunity to do that. And that's what I find really interesting as we go forward. You know, he talked about it years ago. We now will have an administration. Obviously, Biden is beginning to talk about the Biden health plan built upon Obamacare. And uh, and so there are things in there that clearly didn't work. We're sitting here today, as you know it, the the premiums that families pay on the exchanges, I've got relatives, they're paying 20-something thousand dollars a year for their family, and then they've got a seven or $10,000 out of pocket with deductibles and co-pays and things. That's just unsustainable. We knew from the beginning that the Affordable Care Act, what should have actually been called the Access Care Act, we created access. We allowed people to get insurance. It was a great idea. I agree with that. But you can't just throw them into a system of wolves who are going to eat it up, and and that's what's happened. There was no affordability in it because we didn't control those pieces, and they knew it when they wrote it. That was going to be the next round. We never got there. And so, what is it, 10 years later? Yeah. We're now sitting at an unaffordable act, not because the idea in and of itself at a base was flawed, but because the execution was bad. And that's what we got to go fix, whether it's the medical loss ratio rule, not negotiating for pharmacy prices, those kinds of things, I think, are where we can begin to impact it. And it's interesting to watch President-elect Biden and the folks who are beginning to talk about who he might put in place at HHS or at some of these other agencies that would impact this and uh, I heard Romney's name mentioned at one point, although I'm seeing another list he's not mentioned at all. Obviously, there's speculation everywhere. But putting somebody in there who actually can look at this and say, how do we address the cost issue? 
and look at expanding Medicaid in those states that chose not to. And those other things that that President-elect Biden has talked about, I think, are the areas that will be fascinating to watch. And and we've proposed many of these solutions over the years, the move to value-based care, get rid of the MLR and figure out some other stuff. We'll see where it gets to. That is the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank Fred Goldstein, president of Accountable Health LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm and co-founder and lead co-host at Pop Health Week for his contributions today. For more information on Fred's work, do follow him on Twitter via at FSGoldstein and do check out his work at www.accountablehealthllc.com. Meanwhile, please like and subscribe to Pop Health Week on your favorite podcasting platform and follow our work at www.popupstudio.productions. For Pop Health Week, my colleague Fred Goldstein and Health Innovation Media, this is Greg Masters saying, please stay safe, everyone. We're in this together, and we will only get through this together if we toe the line on social distancing, proper hygiene, and by all means, do wear those masks properly, I might add, when in public. Bye now. Thank you.